0: Showtime, welcome to the show, I'm Brent Holland, and welcome one and it all. Get the coffee going, get the tea going, get a beverage of choice going, have we got a great show for you. Now as I drove to the studio tonight, as always along the shores of Lake Ontario, there were dark clouds making their way rapidly towards us. It's a great night to take this time for yourself, settle in your most comfy chair, kick your feet up, relax. There's also a tornado warning in the upper state New York area and Kingston tonight, folks, by the way. So if you see me bail in the middle, I'll just leave it to our guest tonight. Alan Dale makes his triumphant return. Let me tell you a few things about Alan's extraordinary serendipities that have occurred during his life. Alan is the only person, folks, I know that has had personal interactions with the following. Are you ready for this, folks? President John F. Kennedy? Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Bobby Kennedy, President Richard Nixon, Senator Edward Kennedy, Senator Arlen Specter, no less, Secret Service agent Clint Hill, Ethel Kennedy, who, by the way, gave Alan coffee to take home with him, and John (laughs) Kennedy, Jr. Oh, but there is more. Do I sound like the guy on TV? Do I even look like the guy on TV? No, I have the perfect body for radio folks. That's all I'm gonna tell you. Not many of you may know that Alan is also a professional musician, a drummer, to be exact. And what did the drummer get on his IQ test? Drool, yes indeed. Alan was on the road as valet for none other than two of the greatest drummers of all time, Buddy Rich and Louis Belson. His aunt was actually Pearl Bailey, but if I was to list the many other jazz musicians he has known and performed with, the show would be done. Maybe towards the end of the show, folks, we can entice Alan to tell us some family-appropriate road stories. Back to JFK, Alan also puts together several podcasts of interviews, although the one he did with me, folks has gone missing in the lost tape file. Something about me being Canadian, perhaps, I think. Alan hosts a podcast called JFK Conversation, a podcast at JFK Facts with Jeff Morley. He's a member and curator of the Assassination Archives and Research Centre and is currently research assistant to Dr. John Newman, folks. Let me say that again. He is currently... Research assistant to the one, the only Dr. John Newman. Dr. John Newman's new research is going to rock all of us who are interested in knowing the truth behind the JFK assassination. Alan, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Last Thank minute you. Minute. Thank you, Brent. This is
1: my <laughs> birthday show, by the way.
0: Oh, really? Tomorrow is my birthday.
1: Yes, indeed. You don't look seventy. You, I swear Isn't to you, nice. I've seen plenty of people seventy that didn't look even close to the way you look. So you got—you must be doing something right. I get no respect, folks. I just, no respect you know, at all. No respect uh, at all. Let me yes. begin, if I may, by by correcting the Yeah, simple... let's not do that. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, we'd be here all night. back <laughs> that I am an administrative and research assistant to Dr. John Newman. I'm not the only one, uh, My the person, my friend Jay Harvey, who's been invaluable to Dr. Newman throughout uh, fully a quarter century of Dr. Newman's extraordinary and valuable uh, output. And Jay Harvey has made a significant contribution to the work that we associate with Dr. Newman. So I want to make certain that I'm clear that it's it is true that serendipity as you might say is uh, has brought me and uh my path uh into some kind of you know close proximity to a person whom i greatly admire and that i consider to be one of the most profoundly uh relevant scholars uh at work during this period in our history, a person who properly can be thought of as a successor to the great fellow Canadian, as you would quickly point out, Professor Peter Dale Scott. Without Professor Scott, I'm quite certain that uh, a number of the of the great figures with whom I have the privilege of serving, uh, we would not be where we are. It's as simple as that. Professor Scott has illuminated uh, very dark areas for uh, for the best part, certainly, of at least 40 years, and perhaps longer than that. And without Professor Scott, we would
0: be elsewhere. There's no question about that. And you interviewed him as well. And folks, I would urge you to go to his website, Alan's website, and seek out that interview. It is great. Can well, you give the
1: URL for that? It's just... Uh, JFK Conversations, plural, jfkconversations.com. And I sincerely appreciate you acknowledging that particular program because uh, the story about the program, Brent, if I've never shared with you, and I think it's possible I have not, is funny. And uh, I made a mistake right out of the gate. I was nervous. I was sleepy and vulnerable. I was ill at ease about initiating contact with someone whom I consider to be a personal hero. I had worked on... um, in the company of my dear late friend, Sherry Feaster, I, we had worked on a essentially a, a form letter, which was never intended to be sent out. It was just a model to say, look, here's an idea. I knew plenty of people in this community, but there were certain people that I did not, and, and Professor Scott was at the top of the list. So I wanted to make a good impression. Instead, I sent him a letter which began that, Hello, Professor Scott, uh, my name is Alan Dale, I'm, I would be very interested. I'm, I, I'd like to um, introduce to you uh, the fact that uh, there is a new interview program. Uh, and, and that's uh, when he said, it's not Holland's again, is it? No, he didn't say that. He, he, I, <laughs> he did, and then I said, who? But, in any event, um, we we got to the point where where i I simply uh, recommended that if it would be possible and if it would be something that he would be interested in, you know participating, if he would be interested in participating, I'd be honored to speak with him about his book, Brothers: The Hidden History of the Kennedy Years. Which, of course, is David Talbot's book, which I highly recommend. By the way, it's my favorite of the materials that David has produced. I think it's underrated and should be, should be recommended. In any event, um, so I realized what I had done. <laughs> <laughs> but not until after I pressed send. And so then I thought, well, I, 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 I suppose I'm really no worse off never being allowed to speak with him, because I already have never spoken with him. So I was philosophical about my failure. And the next morning I had his typical, super, what I've learned now to recognize, as his typical, unbelievably polite, diplomatic and gentle but authoritative response, which was, Hello, Alan, I'm certainly happy to hear about uh, your new program. Uh, My enthusiasm is diminished somewhat by the fact that you've confused me with David Talbot. Uh, (laughs) I I wrote back and I said, Professor, I can assure you that that this is an example of what I like to refer to as human error. And uh, rather than blame one of my administrative assistants or some underling, who, of course, I don't have any, although I certainly wish I did, uh, I accepted that I had made a mistake. Ultimately, we put it together. Uh, uh, Professor Scott guaranteed me, uh, or at least (laughs) was willing to concede, that we might be able to talk for an hour. I said 45, 50 minutes to an hour would be great. At the one hour and 45 minute mark, I said to Professor Scott, look, you're being very generous with your time, for which I'm certainly grateful. But but surely you have better things to do at this point. And uh, I when it was when we concluded I walked outside and after all of my anxiety, I told Professor Scott during the program, I said I prepared for, for this conversation by calling people like Dr. John Newman and saying, Help. You know, uh, but the truth is, I knew that it went well, uh, and and I felt that Professor Scott felt that it went well, which was uh, just stunning to me, really, honestly, because for me, he's he's our first Mount Rushmore figure in terms of people who take it upon themselves to come to a deeper and better understanding of reality, and uh, in the context of American history. Yeah, but during in Cold all. War all honesty,
0: I have done things like that myself, so you don't yeah. have to worry. Folks, tonight we're speaking with Dr. John Newman and his book, his brand new book, Where Angels tre- Tread. No, you're, no, you're no, no, not Dr. Is... John Newman?
1: See, here's an example you having Human Error. See, that's so ironic that you should do that right then, because a lot of people would just think, well, that's very typical of him, but I recognized right away that you're putting me on, see? <laughs> so that's, that explains a lot. Okay, let's go. By the back. way, it. book well, "Countdown down to Darkness." "Countdown to Darkness." Or Angels uh, tread
0: lightly is another one. No,
1: that's volume one. That no, was 2015. But one of his books. Well, if you're going to get huffy about it, really I mean, uh, you you know, when you're right, you're right. I I'm not going to comment upon how often that happens. But when you're right, you're right, and. Um, and I'm very honored to be associated in any capacity uh, as an assistant to somebody like Dr. John Newman.
0: What can you tell us about the research that Dr. John Newman has done? Is there anything you can give away that won't look, ruin it for people? Well, I home? will. Look, the, the, I'm off screen, the, folks. That's it. You know, I had one question for Alan. And I told him this before the show. I read him the whole preamble that I screwed up and I made mistakes and I'll fix it for TV. And I said, Alan, I have one question for you. Who killed JFK? And I said, the rest of the page is blank. And where we go, we go. And we've already gone places. But I figured, because we're talking about Dr. John Newman and because his research is so important and you're one of the main research assistants to him, is there anything you can give us, tantalize us?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I honestly feel that with with consideration of the fact that you've been very generous with me, you've allowed me to speak on the subject of Dr. Newman's work in the past, and I don't want necessarily to repeat myself ad infinitum. I don't want to go overboard about my particular, you know, biases, about uh, why I think he's a figure of extraordinary significance, extraordinary significance. An extraordinarily and uniquely qualified figure to address uh, really kind of indescribably complex things. Um, What's one of those complex things? Can you give us some juice? Yeah, I can give you some juice. I mean, the juice is that a lot of people... Well, let let me start like this. Uh, I, I wrote a bio for Dr. Newman. I've, I've written several things that we use uh, to represent him and to emphasize the value of his work. And the most recent and really most uh, the most concise bio that I'm that I've used recently is two brief paragraphs. And if you'll allow me, I'll I'll share these. Um, Dr. John Newman is a retired U.S. Army intelligence officer who served for two years as military assistant to the Director General William Odom at the National Security Agency. His 1991 groundbreaking book, JFK in Vietnam, led to Oswald and the CIA. Published in 1995, his second book explored the CIA's keen operational interest in Lee Harvey Oswald. It focused on the people and components within the agency that opened and maintained Oswald's intelligence files for four years prior to the president's assassination, and it provided evidence to explore the question of whether Oswald might have been a false defector when he left the United States for the Soviet Union in 1959. And then in brackets, I've written "see Countdown to Darkness, Chapters 1 and 18 for a detailed account of that story. Newman re-entered the JFK case in 2015 with the publication of Where Angels Tread Lightly, The Assassination of President Kennedy, Volume 1. The updated and expanded second edition of JFK in Vietnam appeared in January 2017, as did Volume 2 in Newman's series on the assassination, Countdown to Darkness. His experience and expertise as a strategic intelligence cryptologic analyst makes his qualifications and credentials unique among those who choose to delve into America's hidden histories. Can I stop you right at- Can
0: you say that again? Because I want to get this across to people in all seriousness. Alan and I are going to joke around tonight, but not right now. This is very serious, folks, because Dr. Newman comes with this unique perspective that no other researcher, no other researcher has. Can you read that line again, please?
1: His his experience and expertise as a strategic intelligence cryptologic analyst make his qualifications and credentials unique among those who choose to delve into America's hidden histories. Dr. Newman is adjunct professor of political science at James Madison University for the past quarter century. His work has overturned orthodoxies, broken new ground, introduced new facts, and produced revelations about America during the Cold War.
0: And there it is, folks. And that's what makes Dr. Newman's research groundbreaking. Dr. Newman's in the deep end of the pool, folks. He's on the cutting edge of the latest research. And Alan is right there beside him. Many times, Alan and I Skype, and Alan will have spent the day in the National Archives, And some of the stories Alan tells me, if he would tell them now, like files that are supposed to be there and are not. Can you tell that story, Alan?
1: Well, I mean, you know, there's a lot of that kind of thing. Uh, The JFK assassination records are in the news because on July 24th, was it? Uh, National Archives surprised us with a preemptive release, the deadline uh, for those who may not be familiar with the 1992 President John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act and the appointment of the Assassination Records Review Board, which uh, was assigned the rather daunting responsibility of first defining what would constitute assassination-related as an official classification. What does it mean for a federal document to be assassination-related? What's the process by which informed judges will differentiate between what's relevant to the assassination and what is not? Uh, That the work of the ARRB lasted for four years or maybe slightly more. And they went through an awful lot of material that representatives of federal agencies, CIA uh, Treasury Department, uh, and Naval Intelligence, FBI, all kinds of the usual places, Army Intelligence, Secret Service obviously, and, and a whole bunch of other things, and the materials were submitted for review, and the process is lengthy and complicated and probably was impossible from the very beginning, but they made a hell of an effort, and during the course of the number of years that the ARRB um, was seated, um, an awful lot of material got released. Millions of pages of material was released in part or in full, in addition to which quite a lot of material was uh, regarded as... Uh, not to be released until the statutory conclusion of the 1992 JFK Assassinations Record Collection Act specified. And that conclusion was 25 years from the point at which the law, the, the piece of legislation became law. That 25 anver- 25th anniversary is October 26th of this year, 2017. So, uh, with regard to some anticipation among serious and disciplined scholars who are very much interested in seeing what has up until this point been denied to us, either in part or in full. Uh, Nera, rather than dropping all of it all at once, made what I th- think is certainly an interesting uh, decision and makes it easier for us to begin the process of analyzing, and interpreting, and comparing, and uh, trying to have a a reasonable sense. It's going to take a while, but having some sense of what was included in this most recent release, it's going to take quite a bit of time, but we do have a head start, and we anticipate that probably uh, quite a lot of additional material will be made available to us, as you know, because you and I have discussed this, the President of the United States, whoever that may be, on October 26, will have the authority to respond to um, requests by the agencies, the originating agency. For instance, just to use as an example, if the CIA has CIA documents, which they will claim are relevant to maintaining uh, issues of national security, to protect issues of security, and there's a very specific language that I've referred to in the past about what that means, then they can bring that to the president and say, hey, we shouldn't release this, and then it's the president's single decision, singularly responsible for deciding if he should go along with um, that recommendation. And usually we would expect a person in that position to do whatever the agency recommends. I can hardly imagine an alternative. So, uh, as our friend Bill Simpich would say, it's great to have lots of new stuff. The truth is, uh, very very few people have dealt with the old stuff, and so you know what what we find is that there are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots, and lots of pieces of paper that are relevant to developing a multi-dimensional um, very deep and very broad documentary record of the years which preceded President Kennedy's assassination and the a certain period of time thereafter, which I, I think, and certainly Dr. Newman feels very strongly, all of that is relevant to, you know, to developing um, an appropriate piece of solid ground for us to stand on before we deal with Dealey Plaza. I'm not saying that Dealey Plaza isn't important. There are important things there. I've spoken at length about, you know, the work of Sherry Feaster and Dr. Josiah Thompson and Dr. Gary Aguilar. work? Well, we've covered that. You
0: and I have it's really okay, talked for about those, that. Just very briefly, a couple of sentences, or I can do it, just so, because... Folks Short version,
1: Short version is, Sherry Feaster is uh, gone now, sadly, but she was a uh, a court-certified crime scene reconstruction expert with a particular area of expertise. Uh, she was a law enforcement officer, had a particular area of expertise called blood spatter analysis. She was brought really rather accidentally into analyzing uh, the Zupruder film and every other aspect of what we have. It's documents the way the Dallas police handled the immediate aftermath of the investigation or the immediate aftermath of the assassination and all of that. She produced a book um, in which her findings are printed. It's called Enemy of the Truth, Myths, Forensics, and the Kennedy Assassination. And she redefined for me, to my satisfaction, I'm not speaking you know, beyond what I know, and I know that for me personally, uh, what she defined as a 35 degree trajectory cone, within which, uh, it's 35 degrees horizontally and vertically, uh, directly in front of where President Kennedy was facing at frame 312 in the Zapruder f- sequence, and as I've said so many times, it has redefined for me what the word front means. I believe, I believe, having absolutely no understanding of forensic science whatsoever, uh, that President Kennedy was shot in the head from the front, and that there are areas uh, uh, within Dewey Plaza which could accommodate a shot that enters him enters the right hemisphere of his skull, does extent, extensive damage to the right side of his head, but exit, exits the right side of his head. All the right side, all the complete right hemisphere of his skull. No traversing of the midline of the skull. In other words, no bullet passed from the right side into the left side across the midline of his skull. So if you draw a straight line from the top of his head down across his nose, you differentiate between the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere. His head was pointed 25.7 degrees to the left of center. His head was pointed down, his head was tilted to the left, and um, I think that Sherry Feaster has correctly placed a, a, um, a sniper uh, across those three streets, uh, Houston, Maine, and Elm—or not Houston. Uh, con- what was it? Commerce. Um, Commerce. No, it's Commerce, yeah. Commerce, Main, and Elm. I turned left off of Houston Street onto Elm Street, but uh, a- across north. across those three streets on the opposite. No. I think someone fired a shot that struck President Kennedy in the right side of his skull. And, uh, you know, I could certainly be wrong, but for me personally, I'm persuaded that her contribution there is uh, something which eventually may serve as a model for future, future investigators.
0: A very quick announcement, folks, on that. I am doing a documentary on Sherry Feaster and her work. Also, the Ted Sorensen documentary I started several years ago is almost complete, so more on that soon. Now, I hear a lot of naysayers out there right now saying, no, 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 it's all wrong. We can't trust Sherry's work because the Sapruder film has been doctored. I have only one thing to say to you. If somebody was going to doctor that (laughs) Sapruder film, don't you think they would have shown the shot only coming from the back and not the front? What Sherry has done is looked at the Sapruder film, and the Sapruder film shows a frontal shot. So that blows all that nonsense out the window. And I say nonsense with all reverence, because I don't believe the Sapruder film was doctored whatsoever. I think we're off on the wrong tangent. It's like looking at little tiny pixels. This is something I discussed with, with Alan. I wanted to get out of Dealey Plaza, and look at the behind the scenes I am so fed up with people coming and saying oh look I found this in this picture oh look I found it's over it's done we know there was a conspiracy we know for sure scientific proof there was a frontal shot let's get out of Dealey Plaza and find out who was behind it so once again folks just to reiterate this Zapruder film very clearly shows a frontal shot science has proven it we see back into the left, physics has proven it. If you had that film, first of all, you would destroy it. If you were going to get rid of it. Absolutely destroy it. If you were going to doctor it, you would doctor it so it showed a rear shot. Not a frontal shot. That's all I'm going to say. Back to Alan. Alan? am going to start off mm-hmm. with the question I wanted to ask you 20 minutes ago. <laughs> Who killed JFK?
1: Why well, it's... It's an important question. I'll tell you in all sincerity that uh, I will be uh, interested in the answers which are being promised by uh, authors whose works have yet to be published but are advertising that they intend to explain not only who did the shooting but who was responsible. Um, I. Uh, I will withhold any judgment of any such claims until I have an opportunity to review whatever anybody produces. Uh, Let's—I I would be dishonest if I didn't say I'm extremely skeptical. What I—what I can say is that the real reason that I wanted to speak with you about this this evening is to emphasize to people who don't have the time. Who shouldn't be criticized because they can't read everything, and that they are they sh- who should be encouraged because they are sufficiently interested that they're they pay attention to certain things when when they are promoted and when they are when they come into contact with certain claims. Um, we tend to have predispositions towards wanting to believe what we want to believe. That's human nature. Uh, I've learned painfully that it's most important for us to try to resist that that tendency. Um, my friend, great, ultimate British scholar Malcolm Blunt has an expression, a Scottish expression, you don't want to be caught with your kilt around your ankles. And uh, There is a rush, to borrow Mark Lane's phrase, there's a rush to judgment. Uh, not only to criticize things to which we are fundamentally opposed, but also to embrace things, sometimes far too uncritically, just because basically it sounds like what we want to be true, and there is nothing more harmful to our work and to our effort than that that fact. Uh, we, ha- we must take the late Chris- Christopher Hitchens' um, um words seriously when he suggested that it's our responsibility to be more critical of things that we would want to be true because otherwise we we have we risk uh, being caught with our kilts around our ankles we risk being exposed as having embraced something prematurely uh, simply because we would choose that it would be true and there's an awful lot of that present in lots of books. You know, you you referred to lots of books. You know, we think in terms of really thousands of books, specifically about the assassination. And if I wanted to be, you know, carelessly critical, I would say there's part of the problem right there: thousands of books on the assassination. But how many books on how many books on the subjects? relevant to President Kennedy's life leading up to the assassination. And the, and the story of the Cold War and the story of, let's just say, to pick a point, uh, um, post-World War II America, uh, the conversion, basically 1942, military intelligence into the Office of Strategic Services, the conversion of the OSS into the CIA 1947. And uh, who those guys were, and um, what sort of world view did they have, what kind of backgrounds did they have, what were their civilian lives, what did their civilian lives consist of, were they bankers, did they work for interests, you know, private enterprise interests that are relevant to industries which profit from war, things, all kinds of things. What what was the world view? Of people who, like, for instance, uh, John Foster or Alan Dulles, figures of consequence, that you know, people who are preoccupied with, you know, analyzing kind of unintelligible photographs of, you know, fuzzy parts of Dealey Plaza at 12:30 on November 22nd 1963 you know maybe they're looking for something there as a revelation and the point that I would want to make very gently is that really the context of the years leading up to that moment is um, a, an extremely valuable place to invest your time and your effort there are lots and lots of books that I can recommend and I, I want to do that. I want to, If you'll allow me, I'll recommend that, that the story of who JFK is by November 22nd of 1963 is very important if we want to try to develop a sense of who his enemies may have been. Exactly. Why was JFK killed? You have to look at everything that came
0: before JFK November 22nd, 1963 to know that the jfk assassination the definitive book by brent holland from inside the oval office to davy plaza first person witness accounts order yours right now www.nightfrightshow.com
1: here's something that i'm going to share with you uh the uh, for a number of years, as you know, the CIA maintained an, a private uh, um, database at the National Archives. It's called the Crest Computer System. Um, and Crest was really just a way of um, you know, f- keeping track of stuff that the agency felt was sufficiently important that they wanted to be aware of it. So it, it's this CIA records search tool, CREST, CIA records search tool. And, in, and I've spent a lot of time uh, inside NARA looking at this stuff and the, the, the way it was set up for those of us who are researchers and, or, or have access to National Archives stuff, uh, we were allowed to search for whatever we wanted, spend as much time we there as we chose and then print out on light blue paper anything that we found that was sufficiently interesting we wanted to take out. In contrast to which in the researchers room where we're dealing with, you know, huge quantities of uh, great numbers of boxes of pieces of paper and all kinds of other things, photographs, whatever, you're allowed to use a flatbed scanner or a camera, but you're not allowed to physically, you know, take stuff out, although I suppose if you have a lot of money, you can spend uh, 50 or 80 cents a page and and use their copying machines there. Um, But in any event, the Crest thing is interesting because it covers really a whole hell of a lot of American history, all the way back to the Civil War, perhaps even beyond that. I found all kinds of interesting stuff, not relevant really to my areas of interest, but um, or areas of research, but interesting nonetheless, including formulas for Invisible Ink and all kinds of stuff like that. One of the pages that I pulled out, and this is give you a sense of some, this is just one example of something that the agency felt was sufficiently interesting that they maintained a record of it. It was published at the University of Maine, and it was handed out by... Um, SDS members, Students for Democratic Society, I think, uh, during a recruiting session, and so the agency ended up with this, the, with this pamphlet, right? This this handout, and there, and this is the way the the handout concludes. It says the CIA then is in, is in no reactionary, is no. Reactionary secret society, nor a furtive invisible government. It is, in fact, under the control of the political leaders of the U.S. government. Now, that's from the Times of the of four twenty-five sixty-six. Okay, of April twenty-fifth, nineteen sixty-six. That's that's a quote that that is imposed upon the American public through the national media. Um, And what follows is. For what reason, then, does the government employ a secret agency, an organization which intervenes in every way all over the world against the poor? Arnold Toynbee, the far-from-radical historian, And He's an eminent historian of the 20th century. Uh, Arnold Toynbee, the far from radical historian, suggests the following observation which may provide an explanation. This is from uh, a publication of essays of his from 1962 called America and the World Revolution. So this is Arnold Toynbee speaking in 1962. America is today the leader of a worldwide anti-revolutionary movement in defense of vested interests. She now stands for what Rome stood for. Rome consistently supported the rich against the poor in all foreign communities that fell under her sway. and Since the poor have always and everywhere been far more numerous than the rich, Rome's policy made for inequality, for injustice, and for the least happiness of the greatest number. America's decision to adopt Rome's role has been deliberate, if I have gauged it right. Now this is a guy that is about as far from being you know Gore Vidal as you could be he's uh, he's not Noam Chomsky he's not uh, Alexander coburn he's 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 a, a guy where every college on in the Western world certainly has the works of Arnold Toynbee and this was his perception I'm not certain which essay uh, from which this was drawn is being alluded to here, but the collection itself was published in '62. JFK is, you know, sworn in in January of 1961, and the point that I would make is the the perception of a person such as Toynbee, and remember there are big differences between professionals and people who are not professionals. That perception, I think, um, has uh, uh, is an important perspective to keep in mind if we are willing to make the effort to educate ourselves more about who JFK was, what does the documentary record show? Because what you're hearing about JFK being a philanderer or JFK having an interest in, let's say, an operational interest in, you know, Marilyn Monroe, the kinds of stuff that is imposed upon us might, be, might have some ulterior motive it might really and truly be a part of something that is designed to diminish the memory and the significance, to suggest the frivolity or the insubstantial nature of this extraordinary young man who found his way into the office of the presidency and who did so much behind the scenes to challenge the status quo whether we're talking about his utilization of the Comptroller of Treasury, James um, Saxon, to evaluate the implementation of the 1863 Banking Act, the Banking Act of 1863, to challenge the authority of the Federal Reserve and to take back 4,600 banks so that he could operate what an economist might refer to as a an, an, an Hamiltonian dirigism, where the government of the United States takes an active role in the economy, as opposed to a passive role, simply supporting whatever lead the ben, the, that benefits big business, and accepting the philosophy that what's good for big business is good for America. Um, challenging the conceit that JFK was just another Cold Warrior, that where there was no meaningful disruption of continuity between uh, his administration and Lyndon Johnson's succession, that Johnson basically just continued... JFK's policies, if we learn how JFK felt about America in Vietnam as early as 1954 in his response to Dien Bien Phu and his criticism of the Dulles Brothers and of President Eisenhower's administration of that crisis for the French government. and. and if we bother to look up his speech on the Senate floor in 1957 on the subject of European and other colonialism, especially focused in that speech on the predicament of France in Algeria, that is a very definitive telling of how this guy felt about stuff. There are many, many examples, some of which are, are really kind of remarkable, I mean, really, actually more progressive than even a figure like Adlai Stevenson was willing to be publicly during the 1956 campaign. So there are a handful of books that I'm just going to rattle off, and it's entirely okay with me if you want to skip over this part, but I'm going to make reference to these because I think that they're valuable. At the top of the list is the work of Professor Peter Dale Scott, Uh, his books, The American War Machine and The War Conspiracy, I put really rather at the top of the list of things that for me are not irrelevant to your original question. Who killed President Kennedy? Uh, And and in no particular order, I would follow that with um, a book by a guy that I've mentioned to you that actually Jim DiEginio brought to my attention, Richard A. Mahoney. It's called JFK Ordeal in Africa. It was published in the early 80s. That's important. Uh, Consistent with that and continuing along that line uh, are some recent publications. Um, Kennedy Johnson in the Non-Aligned World. Betting on the Africans, John F. Kennedy's courting of African nationalist leaders, Philip E. Mulebeck. that's 2012. Um, Cloak and Dollar, A History of American Secret Intelligence, second edition by Rodri Jeffries Jones. What I was going to
0: tell the folks that are listening and, and watching right now, it's, this is why it's so important that we zoom out of Dealey Plaza. It's so important because we know for a fact that there were shooters, more than one shooter, in Dealey Plaza. We don't know how they got there or why they were there. In other words, why was President Kennedy killed? Who was behind it? And this is why we have to do all this work outside of Dealey Plaza. It's perhaps not as in- sexy and in vogue as looking inside of all these pictures and the a Pruder film and stuff. I think that's just a diversion to be honest with you to keep us away from actually getting outside of the plaza. But there's a lot there. We have to look at his foreign policy. We have to look at his domestic policies. Alan's quite right. His policy on Vietnam, Um, his financial policies. We have to look at everything, the big picture. What was he threatening? Was he just threatening one thing with civil rights? Sorensen mentioned that to me, that a lot of people not happy with him over civil rights. Was he mentioned? Was he threatening another thing with the CIA, wanting to bust up the CIA? There was multifaceted reasons why he was killed, and there was multifaceted people behind it. And this is Dr. John Newman's work. This is why it's essential that you get his books. Alan Dale is an assistant to Dr. John Newman. And he's doing impeccable work. He goes down to the research area all the time. And they know him by name now. And they take him out for lunch. Isn't that nice? (laughs) Alan Dale's our guest. All his links of everything that we've been talking about tonight will be on our website, as always. Alan, when you were doing your research, was there one thing that you can share with us? I don't want you to give anything away, ever, that shocked you that people may not be aware of.
1: I think what is shocking, uh, what I truly did not have an appreciation of, is um, the the conceit, the consensus among President Kennedy's military advisors in particular about the necessity of um, initiating a final uh, attack, an ultimate resolution to processes that had been ongoing since before and certainly throughout in, in post-World War II against the Soviet Union, that the 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 real prevailing sort of mentality of these guys who were all veterans of World War II was that there would be an ultimate showdown with the Soviets. There could be no peaceful negotiation. Uh, so what you just described in terms of, you know, you're placing it in terms of advocating that people get out of Dealey Plaza, the thing I would say is, Bef- I'm not saying get out of Dealey Plaza, I'm saying let's do a little bit of remedial history before we go there. Uh, I have made it a point to use my the privilege that I enjoy as uh, Director of the Assassination Archives and Research Center, which is AARCLibrary.org, I've made it a point to emphasize the context Of the assassinations of the 60s, which I consider to be um, important. And uh, one of the important Cold War documents that kind of startled me in, in answer to your question is something that was published as a report on the covert activities of the Central Intelligence Agency. It was officially called the Hoover Report. It was It was published in 1954 for President Eisenhower. It was not something. It was top secret. It was not something you could go to a bookstore and purchase. And it was it was um, led by a man named General James Jimmy Doolittle. General Doolittle, and he was a real hardcore warrior. You know, Jimmy Doolittle's exploits during World War II are the stuff of which legends and movies are made. But the I Doolittle can
0: I, on Japan.
1: Sure. Well, exactly right. But the Doolittle Report is how the Hoover Report is more properly or more popularly known. It's something that I want people to be aware of. And I think it's as good a starting point as any place else. And I I can give you a brief overview. Um, Here's a quote. Uh, We are facing an enemy whose objective is world domination by whatever means, at whatever cost. There are no rules. Hitherto acceptable norms of human conduct do not apply. That was the prevailing ideology of the post-war period. Up through the point at which jfK is is finding is seeking to find an end to the Cold War and a peaceful resolution to the p- conflicts which have the potential to end all human life on this planet. so while JFK uh, is maybe ahead of his time, maybe decades ahead of his time, and is doing more than just creating in collaboration with his most valued uh, speech writer, Ted Sorensen, the rhetoric which is inspirational to everybody all over the world who who seeks to, you know pursue the means by which their children, our children, will be guaranteed a, a, a peaceful future. Um, he was really. The odd man out. He was the aberration. He himself was the aberration in a system that I believe is is kind of um, epitomized and 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 accurately summarized by the substance and the tone and the the um, ideology of the Doolittle Report. Uh, The report on the covert activities of the Central Intelligence Agency, also referred to as the Hoover Report, and more commonly the Doolittle Doolittle Report, a 69-page Formally classified comprehensive study on the personnel, security, adequacy and efficacy of the Central Intelligence Agency, written by Lieutenant General James H. Doolittle, United States President Dwight Eisenhower requested the report in July 54 at the height of the Cold War and following coups in Iran and Guatemala, the report compares with other contemporary Cold War documents. Uh, which sought to try to give the president uh, a somewhat objective. He did not go within the agency. He didn't go to the agency and say, hey, do give me a report on the agency. He went outside of the agency, and the, the result is something that serves as really, I think it could possibly properly be referred to as a manifesto about how, all of the old gentlemanly <laughs> considerations about how to conduct covert warfare against an enemy that is intent upon taking over the world through hostile means um, all of that is a thing of the past it, it's something that is exemplified by Joseph McCarthy and the whole you know red menace thing and all of that and and you can download I've got it's expurgated there there are some parts that are not available. But uh, I recommend if you go to the aarclibrary.org website, look at the menu on the left, you'll see something that says Cold War Context. You can read the Wikipedia description of um, the uh, origin of the report, and you can download the actual report as it is available to us right now. Things like that are surprising. Also, I should point out, I suppose, that the news that Uh, General Charles Cabell, who's fired JFK, former deputy assistant to the central intelligence, to the director of the CIA. His brother, Earl Cabell, was, uh, since 1956, a uh, CIA asset, and um, that came as news to people who did not know that that was the case. Earl Cabell, by the way, folks, was the mayor,
0: November 22nd, 19. 63. Alan, we've only got a few minutes left. I promised the folks a road story. And by the way, folks, (laughs) I want to assure you with Alan's grace, he'll be back without question. If he wants to come back, he's welcome anytime. And we're almost at the point now where we're going to be doing a JFK special once again. It's coming up to that time. So, Alan, you know the doors open anytime you want to
1: come back. You're you're more than welcome. Can you tell us a funny road story? I uh, had great Opportunities, incredible blessings, and privileges growing up. My dad was a musician. He knew a lot of famous people before I was born. First time my dad worked in Vegas was for five months in 1947. He got to know a lot of really interesting people. Uh, And so by the time I was you know, a teenager, I became very close. Uh, I was studying with a great drummer, had been Wayne Newton's drummer for three years, a guy named Harvey Lang. And Harvey introduced me to Louis Belson, and Louis became a surrogate father for me for 33 years. Uh, ultimately, uh, his wife, Aunt Pearl, my or Pearl Bailey, became my Aunt Pearl. used to make me fried chicken and butter beans and all kinds of great things and send me presents from all over the world and stuff like that and when she passed away in 1990 or 91 whenever it was um a couple of years later louis met and married someone else and upon his remarriage my band a little quartet of mine played louis belson's wedding reception where he not only sat in but he also danced and sitting having him sit in on my drums was not a big deal to me Really, I mean, it wasn't shocking. But me playing while my teacher is dancing in front of me, that was surreal for me. That was really funny. So I introduced Louis, and I said, because uh, he was going to come in and play a couple of tunes, I said, he may have taught me everything I know, but he hasn't taught me everything he knows. Um, sometime in the mid-80s, uh, it was very typical early to mid-80s for us to spend two weeks a year, I think two weeks, at least a week. 20 seconds. No nope, ch- There's the damn music. Well, whatever. I'll tell you next time. It, it would have been great. I can assure you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Alan, will be back. You know, Alan. Maybe we should just do a show on road stories. No. Do that, okay. Maybe not. No, maybe I'm no. 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 yeah, trying to get him to write a book. A bit, you, said
1: you said user friendly, you <laughs> said family friendly. That's not a whole show. <laughs> <laughs> He's
0: whole got show, some Brent. doozies, folks. He's got some doozies. I'm Brent Holland. Thank you all for joining us. See you next time. Thanks, Alan. <laughs>